This is hell. Live from late capitalism, where we know the price of everything but the value of nothing, this is hell. Alex, I forgot to turn off the air conditioner and the fan. Could you please address those two switches for me, please? Thank you. Last week, we spoke with the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists, Mike Hudson, about the Pandora Papers and the latest revel- uh, revelations about how and where the wealthy and politically powerful hide their fortunes from the public and from taxes. The breadth and depth of the newly released documents is jaw-dropping, but there's nothing new about the inequality and unfairness of tax systems benefiting the wealthy while punishing the poor. We've been talking about it with today's guests since way back in 2009. In a few minutes, returning to This Is Hell will be co-author of the Institute for Policy Studies report, Silver Spoon Oligarchs, How America's 50 Largest Inherited Wealth Dynasties Accelerate Inequality, and that person would be Chuck Collins. As Chuck and his colleagues point out in their analysis, we focus far too much on new wealth of billionaires like Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk and rarely recognize the power of dynastic family wealth. In a healthy democracy, wealth disappears, but the tax system that has been formed through policy decisions, often written by the wealthy and then passed into law by politicians funded by the wealthy. This undermines social mobility and opportunity, you know, what the media likes to call the American dream. Yes, the country's wealthiest families have have a tax system, and then there's the far more taxing system the rest of us experience. And it's not only tax havens. Through a network of charities and foundations, the wealthy can hide their money and pass it along to their heirs tax-free. They also fund lobbyists, political action committees, and think tanks that push their anti-tax position. Whether it's the Tea Party, the American Enterprise Institute, the Cato Institute, the Americans for Prosperity Foundation, the Heritage Foundation, the Manhattan Institute, the... American, uh, the Heartland Institute, they all seem to be funded by dynastic family wealth. Hell, Charles Koch serves on the government panel, the National Petroleum Council, which directly advises the Secretary of Energy. It's time we decide to continue to fund the wealth defense industry and give the wealthiest increasing power, or we can finally do something about having greater opportunities. And yes, dignity for all. Again, our guest today will be Chuck Collins, a senior scholar at the Institute for Policy Studies. Chuck is director of the program on inequality and the common good at IPS, where he co-edits inequality.org. Chuck is author of the new book, The Wealth Hoarders, How Billionaires Pay Millions to Hide Trillions. You can follow Chuck on Twitter at Chuck99, then the word 2, T-O, 1, Chuck9921. Chuck first appeared on This Is Hell in July of 2006 when he reported to us live on elections that were taking place in Oaxaca at the time on this week's Patreon podcast of This Is Hell at patreon.com slash thisishell. We will be sharing a past interview with Chuck. We're not sure which one yet. We're deciding later today, but it might be one we did back in 2009 when Chuck discussed another report he co-authored, Paying for a Strong Economy, Seven New Revenue Sources That Can Revitalize America and Reduce Financial Speculation, which answers the question, where will the money come from to create jobs, reform health care, and build a green infrastructure? I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap radio show host, Chuck Mertz. Producing is Alexander Jerry, 
Alex, what's new about you? Man, I feel bad now. All I'm passing on to my son is eczema. <laughs> That's it? Yeah, probably. That's why I'm not... <laughs> good not, luck, bro. That's why I don't have any uh, kids, because I... Good Lord, can you imagine what genetics I'm passing down? down your, your skin looks wonderful over there. Yeah, too. my skin looks wonderful if I could see it. Nothing's really new by me, actually, other than uh, bracing myself for visiting family that refuses to get vaccinated and insists on trying to convince other family members to do the same, despite everyone in the family already being va- vaccinated. So that should be fun. But more importantly than any of that, Alex, what's this week's question from hell for our listening audience? This week's question from hell is... Any last words? <laughs> Any last words? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from Hell wins your choice of whatever this is Hell merchandise you want. You can check out all of our merchandise right now. The trucker's cap, the winter beanie, the coffee mug, the t-shirt, the tote bag, the flash drive, the face mask, the flash drive of the 20, uh, history of the 21st century, done in a couple of dozen interviews that we've already done in the 2000s, uh, and the face mask, which is all very nice. You can see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. Without you, we got nothing. So thanks to all of you for your support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us. You can email it to us. But we must have your answer by the end of tomorrow's show when we are announcing this week's winner. Following Jeff Dorchin and the moment of truth. During this week's moment, Jeff agrees that the Bitcoin should drop. Alex will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell following our conversation with Chuck Collins on the danger of dynastic family wealth. We got stuff from artists and we love getting stuff from artists. If you're an artist and want to send us stuff, send it to This Is Hell, 2251 West Devon Avenue, second floor, Chicago, Illinois, 60659. That's This Is Hell, 2251 West Devon Avenue, second floor, Chicago, Illinois, 60659. David from Wild Folk Farms in Maine sent us all sorts of stuff, including a couple of copies of the book Hoodwinked in the Hot House, Resist False Solutions to Climate Change. You can download the most recent edition for free by going to climatefalsesolutions.org. When we do have our anniversary and listener appreciation party again, hopefully next year, the two copies David sent us will be raffle prizes, so thank you, David. David was also part of the uh, Beehive Collective, which is apparently a big deal, or at least it was, because whenever I mention how we got something in the ma- in the mail from the Beehive Collective, whoever I tell says, oh yeah, I remember them. So the bees, as they were known, created these two huge murals, one called The True Cost of Coal, and the other was the 10-year-long opus of Mesoamerica Resist. David then sent us prints of both, but we didn't get a chance to take them out of the tube they arrived in until this past weekend. We figured they were going to be huge, so we needed a big, clean space to look at them, and big, clean spaces are in short supply, either here at the office and studio or at my home. But Saturday, I brought up a couple of six-foot-long folding tables up here from the basement of the bar, and... uh, those things are heavy, cumbersome, and for whatever reason, Mel the semi-feral cat loves running between my f- feet when I'm carrying stuff upstairs. So the table had been collecting dust, so after cleaning them, we finally had the opportunity to check out the murals, and they are so cool. In an accompanying pl- pamphlet to guide you through the intricacies of the mural, The True Cost of Coal is subtitled, 
Mountaintop Removal and the Fight for Our Future, which describes the work as an interactive tour of the connections between mountaintop removal, mining, climate change, and the struggle for justice in Appalachia and around the world. Mesoamerica Resist also comes with a pamphlet so you can walk through the triptych. Mesoamerica Resist, according to the accompanying guide, is the third poster in a graphic trilogy about free trade, militarization, and corporate colonialism in the Americas. But here's the weird part. I mentioned this to board op Jess Lipka a couple weeks ago. He not only had heard of the Beehive Collective, but he told me that when he was an undergrad, he had a Mesoamerica Resist print on his dorm room wall. However, he did not have the accompanying brochure, so he never knew exactly what the message was the mural was trying to convey. Now, we do have those pamphlets, and we can't wait to hang out over here and decipher the murals. David, if you are listening, we will do whatever it takes to get the other two posters from the Mesoamerica Resist trilogy. And once former board op here on This Is Hell, Egon Shealy has some free time between his new job, celebrating his birthday, and getting married. We're hoping he can help us figure out a way to display these murals. That way, whenever we have This Is Hell office hours again, our weekly meet and greet, which is really a drink and think, listeners can come up here and learn not only the true cost of coal, but the history of Mesoamerica resisting colonialism. Coming up, dynastic wealth in the United States and how it got that way. Alex will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is any last words? Any last words? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell gets your choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want. Check out all of our stuff right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. Leave your answer at our Facebook page. Tweet it to us. Email it to us. But we have to have your answer by the end of tomorrow's show when we are announcing this week's winner. Also coming up, another artist and listener of the show will be sending us down a rabbit hole that ends at the Museum of Neoliberalism. So stay tuned in for that. Behind every great fortune lies a great crime because this is hell. So did you notice that the wealthy only got wealthier since the pandemic began? Well, we can expect the same as climate change worsens and the already rich line their pockets with even more riches. That is, unless something is done about it and soon. But that may be even more difficult than we may already imagine it will be. After all, there is so much secrecy around the wealth of the wealthy. We don't even know what political movements they are funding or whose campaigns they are bankrolling. It's as if their wealth exists above the law. Here to help us better understand the wealth of the richest families in the United States and how it stays that way returning to This Is Hell. Chuck Collins is co-author of the Institute for Policy Studies report, Silver Spoon Oligarchs, How America's 50 Largest Inherited Wealth Dynasties Accelerate Inequality. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Chuck. Hey, Chuck. Great to be with you. It's great to be with you, too. Always great to talk to somebody who has a beautiful first name like Chuck. I know. And, and reminding me that we talked in 2006 in Oaxaca when I was living in Oaxaca. Now there's memory lane. Thanks. Thanks for that. Yeah. Yeah. I think we, share, we might share that interview as well, because that's just that was a really great interview. So the report states much of the media's focus today is on new wealth billionaires. Jeff Bezos, Mark Zuckerberg and Elon Musk, who have become Senta billionaires in their lifetimes. These splashy first generation fortunes understandably dominate the news. Musk's wealth, for example, increased by more than 100 billion during the first nine months of the pandemic in 2020. These new fortunes feed into the country's self image 
emerge as an entrepreneurial mobile society rather than a caste-based society with historically reinforced patterns of income and wealth inequality. Lurking behind these dynamics, first-generation stories, uh, however, are persistent examples of even greater multi-generational dynastic wealth with some of these family fortunes accelerating over the last century. So, well, here, uh, Musk's wealth increased by far by more than $100 billion during the first nine months of the pandemic. So, Chuck, were people just rushing out to buy electric cars? Well, in, in that case, you know, the, the stock market is always betting on the future. You know, where's the where's things going to go? And obviously they bet on Musk because, well, he's he's future oriented. He's building, you know, batteries. He's thinking about a post oil economy. Um, but, you know, as you said, the uh, I was just looking at the statistics this morning. The billionaires in the United States during the pandemic have seen their wealth go up five, almost $2.1 trillion, $2.1 trillion. The, the, the last number we reported was 1.8. Total U.S. billionaire wealth is just about to hit $5 trillion uh, this week. So um, they have done extraordinarily well, and most of their wealth gains of the last 40 years have happened during the pandemic. The report states in healthy, equitable, democratic societies, great fortunes dissipate over a few generations. But, you know, we've been told by those who oppose inheritance taxes that death taxes punish the wealthy and their children for their success. How punishing are inheritance inheritance taxes? Do they disincentivize the pursuit of wealth? You know, no. And, and actually, the original in, uh, intent 100 years ago of the what we call the estate tax, the U.S. inheritance tax, was to raise revenue, but it was primarily to put a break on these democracy-distorting concentrations of wealth. Um, and for you know several generations, it, it it did do that. You know, it did discourage that that concentration of wealth. These are families that can you know are you know enormously wealthy. They. They uh, may have started businesses. It's not. It's not a disincentive. No, nobody would tell you that a tax at their death is a disincentive to create, you know, a better mousetrap or uh, work hard during their lifetime. Uh, what it does do is it crimps their ability to pass fortunes on to their children, unlimited fortunes. People are still passing on, even with the estate tax, a lot of wealth, and now. The estate tax is almost a joke, um, you know. As Gary Cohn, Trump's White House official, said, uh, "Only morons pay the estate tax." Meaning, the wealthy have figured out ways to plan around it. Um, so the report finds that our country's wealth is accumulating in fewer hands. Those hands often belong to members of a tiny number of dynastically wealthy families, people who may be two, three, or in some cases, seven generations removed from the original source of their wealth. Why should we not incentivize the maintaining of wealth? Isn't maintaining wealth the earning of an income, which is what the system is supposed to incentivize? Well, you know, I think that there's, you know, if we're concerned about incentives, there are plenty of incentives for people to to work and, and accumulate wealth. What we should be concerned about is when that wealth becomes so great that it uh, it's not that people are buying yachts, it's they're buying senators, you know, that they're, they're using that wealth and power to rig the rules to get more wealth and power. 
Um, and that's usually, you know, somewhere along the line of the, the second generation uh, starts to focus on the fact that, oh, we're not like uh, Sam Walton. We're not like the founder of the company. We're just uh, coasting on that wealth. And then they became become incredibly obsessed with defending their wealth and getting in there and, and warping the political system and rigging the rules. Um, and so that that's that's the you know, the purpose of this report, in a way, is to say, let's look at these huge inherited wealth dynasties, what's happening with them and why we should be concerned. And why is it that that some families seem to be focused on dynastic wealth accumulation and others are not? The report also states that we understandably admire entrepreneurs who invent things or build companies, almost always with crucial help from colleagues, workers, and taxpayer-funded infrastructure. But at a certain stage, some of these creators or their descendants shift resources to consolidate their wealth, fend off competition, and create monopolies. They focus less on creating new wealth and more on preserving existing systems that extract ongoing rents from consumers and the real economy. But, Chuck, we're told that these are the job creators. So what is the impact on the overall economy of preserving existing systems that extract ongoing rents from consumers and the real economy? And what is the impact on, on you and me? Well, well, one impact, and I think you, you summarized it well, is uh, people use their market power and their wealth to create monopolies to shut down competition, to snuff out competitors, uh, and in some ways to to block innovation. Uh, so that has consequences on the on the larger economy. Um, and we saw that early on with Microsoft, when Microsoft at a certain point became so powerful, it started to use its market share and power to either buy up the competition and absorb them, or uh, you know kind of promote their inferior products at different times. Um, and then, you know, in terms of wealthy individuals, well, they go out and they hire, you know, what, what we call the wealth defense industry, the tax attorneys and accountants and lawyers and, and family office staff. And their entire focus is on accumulation and preservation. And so, again, they get in there and they start rigging the rules to, you know, get rid of the inheritance tax, uh, get rid of taxes on income from capital. Um, and protect their advantages for their children and their grandchildren. And you start to see that in, you know, in, in higher education and selective colleges. The rich are occupying a huge percentage of the seats in the, you know, the most selective colleges in the land. They're, they're essentially blocking opportunity for non-rich people to have the same opportunities that they had. And that's the corruption of dynastic wealth. The report also points out that America's dynastic families, both old and new, are deploying a range of wealth preservation strategies to further concentrate wealth and power, power that is deployed to influence democratic institutions, depress civic imagination, and rig the rules to further enrich inequality. You know, there's this phrase that there is no alternative. Do you think that the what's the role that the wealthy play in making people believe that there is no alternative? What's the role that it plays in limiting our political imagination? Well, in a way, it's it's the way in which uh, dynastically wealthy people promote certain narratives. I mean, you've you've actually said some of them already. You know, uh, you don't want to punish success and and uh, uh, wealthy people are the job creators, uh, and these are the you know the most uh, productive and important people in the society. 
on and on down the list. And, uh, you know, the whole idea that, oh, you shouldn't tax wealth because that will, you know, kill the goose that laid the golden egg. You know, there's a whole sort of worldview, if you will, that goes along with preserving and protecting existing wealth. Um, and it is useful to make a distinction. Actually, you asked me about Elon Musk. Well, Elon Musk is, you know, he is in the you could say he's sort of in the productive phase of his wealth accumulation. He's he actually doesn't really care that much, as best as I can tell, about his money. He's he's focused on you know creating things, whether it's satellite internet or Tesla batteries or you know rockets and that sort of thing. It's probably we should be concerned in another ten years when he starts to say, oh wow, I have so much money. Now what am I going to do? When they start thinking about their legacy, if you will. Uh, or protecting the, you know, protecting their market position, then, then we should be very, very concerned. And when we start to see Elon Musk's children and grandchildren, which you know, I imagine they're they're going to have some pretty interesting names, um, based on the, you know, what he what he named his first child, uh, th- those children will be, you know, flexing their cultural muscle, you know, long after he's gone. So that's where, you know, we have to make a distinction between, yeah, there is, you know, sometimes people do create a better mousetrap and should be rewarded, uh, you know, up to a point in my view. Um, But that do their children and grandchildren, should they never have to work again in their life? Uh, Should their great grandchildren have a giant foundation that dominates our civic life? You know, those are the, those are, when we start talking about dynasty and sort of the creation of a, wealth oligarchy, that's when we should really be concerned, in my mind. Wait, Chuck, I forgot. What is Elon Musk's kid's name? It's a, um, I can't pronounce it. It's a formula. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. Wow. I thought... uh, we can look that one up while we're talking, but it's like, it's like, uh, you know, it's literally like a formula. That's crazy. So the, yeah. the report also points out that the tax avoidance means less support for the infrastructure we all rely on to preserve our health, safety, and quality of life. But are these dynastic family fortunes large enough so they do not have to rely on the infrastructure the rest of us do? Does our infrastructure matter to them? Well, it does to some extent, you know, to, to particularly around property rights, enforcement of intellectual property laws. There's a whole way in which our publicly funded system does, you know, these are still people who uh, uh, sell their products. Some of them travel over the roads and highways and, and public infrastructure. But what happens with the super wealthy is they sort of do begin to delink from the commonwealth, if you will, that the children go to private schools, not public schools. They have their own estates and forests. They don't need parks. Uh, they, they don't need libraries, public libraries. They have all the books they ever want, you know. So they begin to privatize their needs and withdraw their power and political support for public investments that non rich people kind of depend on. Um, but it, it, you know, they're, in, in some ways, we're still all webbed together because uh, the communications infrastructure, even the internet was built with public investments. Um, you know, there's a fair amount of public infrastructure that we all depend on, whether we admit it or not. 
The report finds the emergence of wealth dynasties undermines how self-governing societies organize meaningful tax systems, raise revenue, and make public investments. Inherited wealth dynasties have benefited from a wealth-hiding system facilitated by a powerful wealth defense industry that enables the wealthy to move their money around the world and escape accountability. But now, as the Pandora Papers show, they don't have to send it anywhere. They can hide it in tax havens, shell companies here in the United States and several states. But there are, it's been a, an explosion of such tax shelters uh, for the rich in South Dakota. The U.S. has used their law enforcement, according to the report, to shut down tax havens in places like the Bahamas. And the U.S. is still working on shutting down tax havens around the world while allowing states here in the U.S. to be tax havens. We've been talking about tax avoidance and dynastic wealth's impact on democracy. What happens to a democracy, Chuck, when it facilitates the tax avoidance by the wealthy and politically powerful from around the world? Yeah. Well, you know, it, it, and there are so many harms, and, and I know you already spoke about the Pandora Papers, but, you know, this is where it overlaps, that uh, when wealthy people don't pay their fair share of taxes, basically they are shifting the bill onto the rest of us. Uh, so whether it's caring for veterans or public infrastructure or um, you know higher education, it you know when rich people uh, don't pay their f- fair share, everyone else is stuck with the bill, or we're stuck with uh, so austerity. You know the hospital that wasn't built the pothole that wasn't filled. Uh, so that's that's clearly one thing. But, you know, the, this system of wealth hiding, um, and I, I wrote a book, Chuck, called The Wealth Hoarders, How Billionaires Pay Millions to Hide Trillions. And it's sort of about this whole phenomena. Um, but, you know, this is the system that allows the plundering of the global south. So if you're a dictator in the global south, uh, or, or actually, let's let's uh, you and I have spoken about Mexico over the years. There are three thousand wealthy people and politically connected people unmasked in the Pandora Papers. Uh, many of them were work in the current or previous administrations, presidential administrations. These are people who are running large public works projects and the like, and they're skimming money off, and they're taking it to a law firm in Panama or the British Virgin Islands, and they're creating a shell company. And then they're funneling the money and buying real estate in the United States, uh, or they're bringing it to a dynasty trust in South Dakota. So in a sense, the United States, by becoming a tax haven, a place where wealthy people can hide their money, we're now accomplices to that, that heist. Uh, we're, we're, we're accomplices and facilitators of that plunder uh, where, where the wealth of, the, of nations is being, you know, taken away. Um, so that's another one of the harms that that uh, this system, this hidden wealth system enables. So then is the United States undermining democracy, not just here in the United States, but around the world? Absolutely. I mean, this is, again, you know, every society should have the ability to uh, pass laws, to tax their own wealthy and then make investments in health infrastructure and and the like. And our sort of hidden wealth system undercuts those societies. Uh, for, for every dollar of aid that goes to Africa, uh, two to three dollars of plunder is taken out through this system of anonymous shell companies and corporations taking the natural resource wealth of a nation 
so yeah, we're we're de- the system destabilizes uh, societies and their democratic aspirations, their self governance, basically. I want to share some of the data that you found. Uh, right, that for the 27 families that were on both the Forbes 400 list in 1983 and the Forbes billion dollar dynasties list in 2020, their combined assets have grown by 1,007 percent over those 37 years. This is a sturdy average annual growth rate of 6.7 percent per year. This growth has hardly wavered through the years. The combined assets of these 27 families grew 99 percent over just the most recent 11 years, from 2009 to 2020. This is an average annual growth rate of 6.5%, almost exactly in line with their nearly 40-year average. In contrast, median family wealth for the typical family in the United States increased by just 93% 93% in inflation-adjusted dollars between 1989 and 2019, the most recent year for which data is available, for an average growth rate of just 1.8%, again, compared to the 6.5%, which is nearly the 40-year average for the wealthiest. So is this unique historically to the past 40 years? Because that lines up with the beginning of Reaganism, Thatcherism, neoliberalism, whatever you want to call the change in tax policy and deprioritization of social services that began in the early 80s. So is this a relatively new situation historically? And if so, what does it reveal to you about changes that have happened in the past 40 years? Well, it is new in the last, if you look over the last century, there was a period of dynastic wealth after the Industrial Revolution. So let's say, you know, 1880 to 1915 or so before the First World War, there was a very similar pattern. And that's where the Rockefellers and the Carnegies and the Mellons and some of these, you know, kind of late um, uh, 19th century dynastic fortunes emerged at that time. But then, you know, 1915, 1916, we start an income tax, we have an inheritance tax, we have a Great Depression, we have two world wars, and we have essentially uh, six or seven decades of relative equality, uh, where you didn't see these growing dynastic fortunes. You didn't see you know, huge concentrations of wealth emerging. And so you're right, the, starting in the late 70s, early 80s, the Reaganomics, but even, even prior to that, we started to see these this pulling apart. So yeah, essentially what you described is these dynastically wealthy families saw their wealth grow 10 times the rate of ordinary families. And by the way, those ordinary families still include a lot of wealthy families. So, you know, compared to income for most people, uh, these these folks are taking off on a rocket launcher. I mean, they're the number of households that have zero or negative wealth is almost one out of five households now. Um, so that the, these trends are a reflection, Chuck, as you describe, of this 40 years of pulling apart that we've been living through. We are speaking with Chuck Collins. He is a senior scholar at the Institute for Policy Studies and co-author of the IPS report, Silver Spoon Oligarchs, How America's 50 Largest Inherited Wealth Dynasties Accelerate Inequality. So the report states that only four of the top 20 wealth dynasties are new to the list since 1983. And between 2015 and 2020, the only family to see its rank decline significantly was the opioid-pushing Sackler family, which fell from from number 16 to number 30, thanks in large part to a number of high-profile legal settlements by their family-owned corporation, Purdue Pharma. 
So it's been the same families for 40 years, and it took record-setting litigation over millions of addictions and deaths to drop one of those families from number 15 to number 30. What does the Sackler family court decision that finds them, it finds them, but does not hold them accountable, what does that say to you about our entrenched dynastic family wealth in the United States? Well, I would say that it's entrenched, <laughs> that it's persistent, that it's uh, it's it's very hard to sort of meaningfully break up those powerful dynasties once they form, because they you know this wealth is power, and they deploy that power to protect their wealth, and uh, you know at the expense of the rest of us, at the expense of equality of opportunity for the rest of us. Um, and yeah, think about that. The Sacklers, whose wealth, you know, uh, and, and uh, you know, it has come from the mass suffering of so many, and to, to and even still, they don't accept responsibility for that, and they continue to be uh, multi-billionaires. You know, their their children and grandchildren will continue to be incredibly wealthy, wealth that came from the opioid epidemic. And, you know, as you point out, uh, as we were talking about earlier, uh, people are billionaires are making a fortune off of the pandemic as well. So it seems like they're constantly making fortunes off crises. We know that we are already living within climate change, but climate change is going to worsen and worsen. So are billionaires right now set up to make a fortune again off of yet another crisis? Well, you know, it's not surprising to see. um some of the wealthiest dynastically wealthy families in the country buying land, huge amounts of land, buying water, water rights, um, purchasing property in different parts of the world, you know, whether it's uh, New Zealand or the Rocky mountains or uh, Canadian provinces where there's, you know, abundant natural resources. Uh, you know, dynastic families think multi-generational. They have, they can afford to, um, and they think they're spotting these, these disruptions, these trends, and they're thinking not just how do we make money off of them, but how do we uh, survive and, and flourish while everyone else is literally treading water. Um, so it's not surprising to see that some of these families are positioning themselves to take advantage of the next disruption. The report states that the Cox, Brown, Walton, Marriott, and Simplot families have set up their own corporate political action committees, PACs, which give millions to political candidates and campaigns on both sides of the aisle. If their project is bipartisan, how insulated is the unfair tax system from reform? Well, again, these families, when they, when they think about their wealth and how to influence the political system, they have a whole range of, of tools. They can give directly to candidates. They can give to think tanks to shape the conversation. They can give to dark money political action committees where they don't have to disclose their influence. They can give to tax exempt charities. So they can even get tax breaks, give to their own foundations and have those foundations, whether it's endow a chair at a university that's, uh, you know, must teach their perspective uh, or think tanks that, you know, advocate a certain worldview. Um, they, they have found ways essentially to weaponize all the ways in which they can deploy their wealth. Um, and that's, that's, you know, partly 
again, this, the way they, they wield power. Um, and, you know, even their charity, even their charities, which, you know, we know that the Koch brothers uh, have figured out how to weaponize their tax exempt money, money that they give to their own charities and take tax breaks. They have figured out how to deploy that to advance their narrow interests. Yeah, the report states that members of dynastically wealthy families wield not only a great deal of direct financial power, but power in the form of philanthropy as well, as you were just saying. So how successful is philanthropy at obfuscating any any gain in the power of the wealthiest? Is that why we may not recognize the power of the wealthiest because of philanthropy? Is that the point of it? Well, you know, I mean, I think, uh, you know, they're probably very wealthy people who genuinely have a philanthropic impulse and they're, and they're giving money to things because they think it's, it's, you know, it's the right thing to do. And they, but, um, philanthropy has also become kind of a virtue washing. It's a way in which wealthy people can sanitize their relationships. I mean, this goes way back. I mean, think about Andrew Carnegie, uh, and his steelworks um, and his union bashing, you know, the, he was an SOB in terms of how he made his money. But at the end of his life, you know, he became Mr. Public Library, right? Mr. County Carnegie Endowment for Peace and International Relations. You know, his philanthropic legacy uh, is also what people remember. And maybe they forget just how ruthless he was. Uh, when he was building his businesses. And same with the Sacklers. People speculate that, you know, the Sacklers uh, gave, you know, billions of dollars to charities, particularly arts institutions all around the world and, and in the United States. And that in some ways it, it, it buffered them from the appropriate scrutiny that probably should have started much sooner as to how they were making their money. Um, so yeah, philanthropy can sometimes uh, distract us from the questions of how has this money been made, and you know, is this philanthropy uh, turning our heads? Is it is it uh, funding certain things but not other things? I mean, it's very rare to find wealthy philanthropists who fund uh, things that would uh, increase tax fairness, that would help worker rights, uh, that would. <laughs> you know, uh, diminish their own wealth and power. Uh, it tends to be reinforcing the status quo. So philanthropy is not a solution. It's sometimes part of the problem. Is the only way you can have a charitable foundation to allow for those foundations that are far less charitable, like the Cokes that only become a place to warehouse assets? Is, is that the difficulty here, that the only way that we can, you know, without the rules that allow for the charitable foundations like the Cokes, there wouldn't be charitable foundations. Yeah, basically, it's the same same system that uh, truly benevolent foundations uh, use. Now, uh, you know, at, at the Institute for Policy Studies, we have a, a whole charity reform initiative because one of the things we've seen, even during the pandemic, is private foundation wealthy people uh, give their money to intermediaries. Uh, you and me and Alex and other people, if we have any extra money, we give it straight to the charity. We give it to the food bank or to your local public radio station or whatever, you know, you're giving directly to the charity. But what wealthy people do is they park the money in their own private foundations and donor advised funds and tend to warehouse it. 
you know, and they immediately get a tax break when they put their money into the charitable institution. And foundations are only required to pay out 5% a year. And that can include overhead, right? So that can include paying my kid to work at the office or whatever. I mean, so it, 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 the money's not really flowing. It's being warehoused. And we, we, we proposed, especially during the pandemic, you know, that foundations should pay out at a higher rate and they shouldn't be able to give to um, closely affiliated organizations. And they probably shouldn't be used for gifts over a certain threshold. You know, uh, you have these billionaires who are saying, oh, I'm creating, you know, my foundation in my image and I'm putting all my billions into it. And that means that money will never be taxed ever. Uh, and that there's something broken about that. So I think we do need to change the rules governing philanthropy, uh, modernize them to protect democracy from narrowly controlled philanthropy. Are the rules that do govern philanthropy now, are they relatively new? Or is, the, is it just that the billionaires today have far better, better legal services and accounting services and they can find the loopholes? No, you know, the framework for the current structure of private foundations, donor advised funds, what qualifies as a charity was created in 1969, which relative in U.S. history was probably one of the most relatively equal times in U.S. history. So uh, th those folks could not have anticipated this incredible growth of concentrated wealth and power. And that's been a steady trend that uh, that we've certainly studied is uh, charitable giving by low and middle income people has gone down in part because people are feeling more economically insecure. Almost all the growth in philanthropic giving is by the rich. And so the rich are starting to use their flex, their power muscles through charity. Um, but we would argue, you know, increase payout, uh, require donor advised funds to have a payout. They don't even have a payout. Uh, require that m money move within a certain period of time and cap the amount you can deduct. Maybe it's a half a billion dollars, you know? Uh, so if Mark Zuckerberg wants to give $10 billion to charity, he's only going to get a tax break for half a billion of that. That, that, that Some of that's going to go to the treasury to pay for public infrastructure. Because philanthropy is not a substitute for a fair tax system and public investment. The report says that the Waltons, the Marshalls, and Mellons have used their foundations to fund nonprofit public policy organizations advocating for reducing taxes on the wealthy, as well as rolling back the corporate taxes and environmental regulations that constrain the profits of their family businesses. Some, such as the Cokes and Mellons, use their foundation to funnel millions to donor-advised funds, charitable giving vehicles with no payout requirement and little transparency, which can be used to fund anonymous, unlimited political advocacy. Why do, why do these donations, why does this funding of political movements, why is this so secret? And is that a protection that is a protection that's good for all of democracy, for everybody, not just for the rich? Well, it shouldn't be secret, um, but, but some wealthy people find ways to do that. For instance, uh, there's, a, there's a donor advised fund consortium called Donors Trust, which is a huge funder of right-wing organizing funding groups, you know, white supremacist groups, 
uh, funding amicus briefs to defend, you know, uh, Supreme Court justices who are, you know, conservatives. So and they and donors can kind of launder the money, if you will, through these anonymous donor advised funds. But but most typically it's a transparent system. You should, you know, a, a foundation files an annual report and it says where the money goes. But here they're they're layering it up with these other um, giving intermediaries. Um, so that that's that's that is something that should also be fixed. There should be greater transparency. I mean, again, Chuck, think about this. We are subsidizing through our tax system these donors, and in fact, the richer you are, the bigger the tax breaks. Uh, we we estimate for every dollar that a billionaire gives to a private to their own charity, say we as taxpayers are chipping in 74 cents in lost tax revenue. So there's a genuine public interest in knowing where the money's going and uh, putting some guardrails up to protect our democracy, protect our society from yet another form of power that the wealthy wield. The report states numerous ways uh, dynastic families protect their wealth. One is form a family office to sequester wealth. Family offices are in the dynastic wealth business. Their central mission is the preservation of wealth and the maximization of the transmission of wealth to future generations. Families setting up offices include many of the top 50 on the Ford's list, Forbes list. Today's wealthy families are laying the groundwork for their own future dynasties by using this tool that has proven advantageous for those in the past. There are now an estimated 10,000 family offices worldwide, and about half were founded within the last 15 years. Even Oprah has a family office, OW Management LLC. Is there any sign this kind of tool, family offices, was the result of lobbying that was funded by the wealthiest families? Well, there are, there are examples where the family office uh, industry has fended off any kind of oversight and regulation. And they are in and of themselves huge pools of unregulated capital. Uh, estimates are there's some six, seven trillion dollars in family offices. Um, you know, there's nothing necessarily inherently diabolical about a family office. It's like forming, you know, a, a, a corporation to manage your affairs. But some of them have become, you know, major investors and uh, kind of unaccountable sort forms of capital. Um, but yeah, the, the, the fact is wealthy people and you, you, you need about $250 million or more to be able to justify having a family office. Uh, that's your own single family office. And think about that. There's 10,000 of them around the world and they're everybody, all the super rich, everybody has a family office now. It's like sort of where they bring their services in house. Um, but even some of the wealthiest families going back to the 1900s, you know, the Rockefeller family, they have opened up their family office to other wealthy families that maybe don't have quite as much money so that they can also manage it. And, and the Phipps family, which is, goes back to Andrew Carnegie's steel industry, started something called the Bessemer Trust. Uh, and now they have 2,500 families whose assets are managed by the Bessemer Trust, including uh, they were they were custodian of Taylor Swift, right? So we know what happens to Taylor Swift and, you know, that, that, that basically her father, but along with this family office, the Bessemer Trust, 
kind of ran her finances. Um, so these, these are the ways in which wealthy families sort of organize to lower their taxes and pass on as much wealth as possible to the next generation. The report states that we can assume that families with accelerating wealth over generations are avoiding substantial estate taxes, and many are deploying tax planning devices to push wealth into trusts that are exempt from the tax. So, Chuck, what impact does raising taxes on the rich have if they have all these other tools to hide their wealth from taxes? Does this make raising taxes on the wealthy ineffective at fighting inequality? It it does. Um, It means several things. It means that our estimates of inequality are probably too low, meaning that the concentration of wealth is much bigger. Uh, We estimate somewhere between 25 and $36 trillion is now hidden in trusts and in offshore tax havens. Um, Yeah. So this is, this is, uh, you know, here where Congress is debating, you know, Joe Biden's proposal to, you know, increase infrastructure and, uh, and, and, make other investments that you know are long overdue and and the plan is to pay for them by increasing taxes on the wealthy which is very popular you know 70 80% of the public supports that and yet this hidden wealth system uh, this this kind of front dynasty friendly tax system if you will or hidden wealth system uh, is is the reason why it's not going to be effective it will undermine our ability to tax the wealthy so 70 to 80 percent of Americans polled say that they would like to see income tax on the taxes on the wealthiest increase. But we only have two political parties here in the United States that have any real power. Do you think people would actually shift their allegiance from one party to another based on increasing taxes for the wealthy? Yeah, you know, I think uh, what's fascinating right now is you know, it hasn't always been the case that taxing the wealthy is the most popular uh, policy. And so, you you know, the Republicans are always opposed to taxing the wealthy. That's their, their constituency. And Democrats are always incredibly nervous or gun shy. And the moderate Democrats run the other way from progressive tax policies. But <laughs> this is a moment where actually it's incredibly popular. Like people are like, yeah, we wanted the infrastructure bill. And then, and then when they hear uh, that, it'll be paid for by increasing taxes on the rich and global companies. They're like, Oh, it's even better. You know? So uh, this is a moment when Democrats, uh, you know, who support raising taxes should be out front because it's, it, it's incredibly popular. And why is it popular? It's because people have totally woken up to these, these inequalities, why they matter, how they undercut the quality of life for non-rich people and how the rich are playing games. And, you know, the Pandora Papers is just the latest, but not the only example of how the super rich game the tax code and pay so little. So this is definitely a moment um, when, when it's popular. Another way in which dynastic family wealth is protected, according to your report, is use your, your unique political connections, which I imagine you can create by having your own family corporation PAC. The, the report then offers the example of Ray Lee Hunt, the patriarch of the Hunt family, a major supporter of former President George W. Bush. 
Hunt gave big to Bush's presidential candidacy and his private foundation. He also served on Bush's Foreign Intelligence Advisory Board and the board of the George W. Bush Presidential Center. In 2007, these contributions paid off when Hunt made a deal with the Kurdistani government to buy oil fields in Iraq worth as much as $14 billion. The arrangement directly conflicted with U.S. policy, which states that only the central government of Iraq has the ability to enter into contract, contracts. But there is evidence that the Bush administration was aware of the deal before it was signed. And in spite of congressional questioning, it still stands today. This suggests that dynastic family wealth and the political connections it can create uh, put those families and the way they earn money above the law. Are, are there any calls to end allowing a billionaire to violate U.S. policy in Iraq? How much does our tax system put billionaires and wealthy families above the law? Well, it's just another part of the political corruption of our democracy when when you have, whether it's the Hunt family example or uh, you know the Koch brothers able to block changes in climate policy um, or other you know dynastic families sort of flexing their muscles in that way. Um, it's it's you know it's it's it, we should constantly be re reminding ourselves this is about power. It's not you know we're not just concerned about this wealth and um, you know yeah it'd be great if that some of that wealth was fairly taxed and invested. But the real, real fear here is dynastic power, oligarchic power, multi-generational inherited wealth power. And, uh, you know, the French economist Thomas Piketty said, you know, if we don't intervene in the system, if we don't figure out how to tax inherited wealth, if we don't figure out how to limit the power of wealth uh, 20 years from now, the sons and daughters of today's billionaires will dominate our politics, culture, philanthropy, and the economy. You know, we'll be, it'll be more corrupt than it currently is. The report points out that one in particular donor's trust of these uh, don donor uh, sites that they can put money was set up uh, intentionally as a pass-through funnel for libertarian donors who want to support organizations advocating for aggressive free market economic policy. Although their current statement of principles has been somewhat watered down, their original message or mission was clear to ensure the intent of donors who are dedicated to the ideals of limited government personal responsibility and free enterprise. Do limited government, personal responsibility, and free enterprise all benefit dynastic family wealth more than any other segment of the population? And are limited government, personal responsibility, and free enterprise about keeping the wealthiest wealthy, which undermines social services, infrastructure, social mobility, while enforcing inequality and unfairness? Yeah, no, it's a, it, it is a very self-serving agenda. Let's just be clear. Um, and, and you see uh, families, uh, you know, go, going back to 2001, I was involved in an effort to try to keep Congress from abolishing the estate tax, the, the, the inheritance tax. And there was this whole end the death tax movement. And when I started to figure out who was on the other side, it was the Gallo family, the Walton family, the Mars Candy family. Uh, the Mars family, based in Virginia, basically funded a campaign to abolish Virginia's estate tax. Successfully, they got rid of it. You know that. You know, so they spent millions to save themselves billions. 
Um, and that's the that's where you really see the, and these are second generation. You don't see the first generation wealth folks out there worried so much about it's, you know, it's the second generation who doesn't have the ability to create that wealth. They're, they're just coasting on the glory of past generations. So what does uh, bipartisan support seemingly for all of this dynastic wealth, what does that say to you about the way political leadership is viewing the unfair and unequal tax system revealed by your report and analysis as well as that of the Pandora Papers? Are these revelations having an impact on the political leadership who the wealthiest families influence? Well, I think it just shows how wealth captures our democratic system. Uh, unfortunately, the Pandora Papers is going to turn up the heat in a lot of other places in the world, uh, you know, like Mexico, you and I were talking about, um, and other places where the politicians and the politi political class are directly implicated. Unfortunately, here in the United States, um, you know, there are no politicians named, partly because you know, the, the leaks came from offshore wealth services firms outside the U.S. If we had a couple of good leaks here in the United States where we saw how our own politicians were kind of in the tank helping protect the system, that might help our reform process. So, But still, we should move ahead because this system really is harming the quality of life for everyone else in the country. So what do we miss in our understanding of how decisions are made at the very top of governance when we do not recognize the national impact of these family foundations? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And, uh, you know, I think part of it's understanding the, the different ways in which wealthy families wield power, uh, that philanthropy is part of that, uh, that uh, direct campaign support and, and you know, the ability of wealthy families to run and finance a campaign to get rid of the estate tax. Uh, that's, that's like as about a selfish interest as you can possibly take. Um, so yeah, it's just understanding that all the arenas in which the super wealthy uh, use their power to limit discussion or, uh, and, and essentially block opportunities for everybody else. So the report states that the oversight role of the Internal Revenue Service has been decimated over the last few decades, particularly in its ability to monitor complex trust and tax loopholes. And this is all discussed on the front page of today's New York Times about what we are going to do about the IRS because uh, Joe Biden wants the President Biden wants IRS to have more access to certain information from banks and the banking industry is trying to stop it. How can the image of the tax man be in any way rehabilitated as a means of fighting inequality? Because apparently, according to the Times, the banking industry is going to be running out all these ads in the very near future to make certain that the IRS doesn't have any increased or expanded power. So how can the image of the tax man in any way be rehabilitated? Well, one is just to realize that, uh, for, first of all, there should be a very clear function at the IRS, which is to watch the financial shell games of the richest one-tenth of one percent, you know, people with $10 million or more, because that's where a huge amount of the corruption comes from. And that's where the expertise has been lost. So there's been this whole campaign against the IRS. And frankly, the IRS is, you know, hasn't helped themselves because you're more likely to be audited for using the earned income credit than you are if you're using some exotic trust. And that's partly because the IRS's oversight ability to, 
to monitor the rich has been decimated. You, you need a certain expertise to follow the money. Uh, and it doesn't help when, when the Biden administration proposes things like, well, we're going to monitor $600 transactions from banks and require reporting on that. It's like, no, we, we don't really care about that. What we should really care about are you know, $600 million transactions and, you know, $600,000 transactions even, but, you know, uh, leave the little people alone. That's not where the, 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 the true crimes are happening. Uh, and the Irish should be seen as an oversight body that defends society against uh, the power of the wealthy and, uh, and make sure they pay their fair share. Why that low $600 amount? Do you think that was an attempt to get bipartisanism behind it? I don't see how it could gets anybody behind it. Uh, I think it's, I think it's a, whatever, a, a, a judgment, a policy mistake, you know, just in the same way president Biden has said, look, I'm, we're going to pay for all this, you know, pandemic relief and, and infrastructure and no one with income over $400,000 is going to pay any more taxes. Well, they, we should be talking the same about enforcement. Uh, you know, the IRS already enforces existing tax laws on working folks. It's the super rich that are getting away with, with a heist here. So I think the, the, it has to be better targeted to win popular support. The report. With my support. Yeah, exactly. The report also <laughs> states Charles Koch, the president and CEO of uh, petroleum company Koch Industries, serves on the National Petroleum Council. This is a government panel with the agency uh, to represent the views of the oil and natural gas industries in advising, informing, and making recommendations to the Secretary of Energy, ensuring that Koch and his corporation have the ear of those writing energy policy. Who appointed Koch to this panel, and can he be removed, say, by the current Secretary of Energy or by the Democratic Majority House? How is Charles Koch still in this position if we have the Democratic Party railing against his power, and now the Democratic Party has power in the White House, in the Senate, in Congress, and he's still sitting there on the National Petroleum Council? Yeah. I mean, these accounts, these 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 commissions and councils sometimes do have like term limited. You know, you point somebody they can't be removed. Um, I'm sure, you know, he was appointed by Trump or or Bush or somebody with kind of an oil industry orientation. Um, you, you see this, you know, there's all these billionaires who are in the energy sector who are very intertangled with policy around energy. Uh, they 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 personally are involved. They're personally on oversight commissions, and they're all huge donors to the Republican Party and probably some to some Democrats as well. So, uh, you know, the the reason why we're still on this sort of collision course around fossil fuels is because the fossil fuel industry is so powerful. They've been able to maintain their oil and gas subsidies. Uh, even even though the industry is, you could consider it a rather mature industry. They don't need government help to start up, uh, but that that continues, and that's because they are just so beholden to the big energy sector donors and their politicians. One last question for you, Chuck. We have been speaking with Chuck Collins, co-author of the Institute for Policy Studies report, Silver Spoon Oligarchs, How America's 50 Largest Inherited Wealth Dynasties Accelerate Inequality. Chuck is also author of the new book, The Wealth Hoarders, How Billionaires Pay Millions to Hide Trillions. You can follow Chuck on Twitter at Chuck99to1. 
So one last question for you, Chuck, and as we do with all of our guests, our final question is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. We wanted uh, by we, we started sorry by talking about Jeff Be- Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk. The report states Chuck Feeney, the Irish-born billionaire, founded the duty-free shops and made millions and then billions as mass passenger aviation took off in the 1970s and 80s. A major proponent of giving while living, Feeney created the Atlantic Philanthropies and gave away over $8 billion over three decades in a booklet about Atlantic's giving philosophy. Zero is the hero. Finney said, I see little reason to delay giving one so much good can be achieved through supporting worthwhile causes today. Besides, it's a lot more fun to give while you live than to give while you are dead. Today, Feeney has just $5 million left of his former $8 billion fortune and lives in a modest apartment in San Francisco, the exemplar of choosing timely giving over dynasty building. So, Chuck, why are Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk glorified and not Feeney? Why isn't Feeney in the media as much as those two? Well, I don't know. I mean, I think we should be lifting up the example of Chuck Feeney. There, Here's a guy who who, who's a reluctant billionaire. He, he, he chose not to be a billionaire. Um, he, he lives a very simple life. Um, and there are other people who kind of like Feeney have chosen not to grab the whole pile uh, or, or take the case of Mackenzie Scott, who was, was married to Jeff Bezos. So she's got 60 billion or so uh, of Amazon stock coming out of her divorce. Her, her um, pledge is to empty the vault. You know, last year she gave out $6 billion. She has got an aggressive plan to move money to the nonprofit sector. She doesn't do, she does it without a lot of strings attached. So there are examples, you know, uh, few and far between, but there's examples of people who are turning their back on the, this dynastic wealth. And they're not sitting around saying, how am I going to pass all this money on to my unborn children? Uh, you know, Craig Newmark of Craigslist. Here's a guy, he could have, he could be a, a, a multi-billionaire, but he decided not to monetize uh, Craigslist. You know, eBay, the, the Omidyars, they monetized it. Now, if you sell something on eBay, you have to pay eBay. But uh, lots of listings on Craigslist are free. And it's his philosophy. It's like, well, let's just keep that money in people's pockets. And so there are people who don't grab the whole pile. And I think we should lift them up as the real exemplars, you know, uh, the people that uh, who understand that wealth is a function of the society and that uh, they have a responsibility to pay back the society who made it possible for them. Chuck, it's great hearing from you again. Chuck, again, is co-author. Chuck Collins is co-author of the Institute for Policy Studies report, Silver Spoon Oligarchs, How America's 50 Largest Inherited Wealth Dynasties Accelerate Inequality, author of the new book, The Wealth Hoarders, How Billionaires Pay Millions to Hide Trillions. Thank you so much for being back on our show. It's great to hear your voice again. It's great to have you back on. And we're going to be bugging you again in the near future to have you back. I sure hope so. Thanks, Chuck. All right. Take care, Chuck. Uh, All those Chucks. 
Live from the United States, where capitalism is the virus, this is hell. If that conversation with Chuck Collins on inequality and the very wealthy families that cause it made you realize that, yes, this really is hell, show your appreciation by either becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus podcast on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell, or go to thisishell.com and click on support and see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported. This is hell. Alex, please remind us what is this week's question from hell and tell us how our listeners are responding so far. This week's question from hell is any last words any last words palo s says i thought you said you wanted to fire me not at me oh, gee. wait actually sorry let me sort this by new uh, i see bane of the producer's existence is sorted yes. by new control f <laughs> okay bradley r says i have named one of you as the executor of my state you're currently <laughs> outstanding your current outstanding debts are considerable you may fire when ready <laughs> luke h says no that's a word. Shit. <laughs> Let me write down when I need to edit out that word. Okay. Uh, Sloan L says, D- Sloan. Sloan L says, D's nuts. <laughs> John T says, don't get a cardboard box from a cheap refrigerator. Get a cardboard box from a good refrigerator. <laughs> That's nice. Uh, Mason W says, is anyone recording? Twitter is going to love this. <laughs> Neil C says, can I interest you in a credit default swap? Wojek R says, you're standing on my oxygen hose. <laughs> uh, Borky B says, should have checked out the house on the rock. <laughs> Braden S says, oh yes, I had a good one ready for this. It was, uh, um, no wait, I've almost got it. It's, and Zach N says, this virtual reality simulator is bupkis. <laughs> bupkis? Is that it? Yeah, that's it. Alex, who is on tomorrow's Wednesday's live one-hour show at 10 a.m. Chicago time right here at thisishell.com. Judith Levine will be back on the show to talk about her piece, Abortion is a Public Good, for Boston Review. When was she on in the past? 2017. Okay, I thought it was recently, too. And it is Levine, correct? Why don't we go back and listen to that 2017 (laughs) interview first and find that that out. Oh, yeah. Also, somebody come to the bar tomorrow night. Oh, yeah. Alex is holding uh, unofficial office hours tomorrow night. Wednesday night. We got an email from another artist, Justin, who writes, Hey, Chuck, as bummed as we are for having to cancel our trip to Chicago because of you rescheduling this year's anniversary party for next year, I'm using our efforts to play it safe this year as an excuse to party twice as hard next year. Thought you'd get a kick out of this artist, Darren Cullen. Here's a link to his Instagram and a pic of his latest project, The Hell Bus. Take it easy. Spread it like cheesy. Justin then sends a link to Instagram.com slash spelling mistakes cost lives. Spelling mistakes cost lives. Where you can see Darren's work, including his hell bus. The image Justin is referring to is a picture of a bus wrapped in an ad for Shell Oil. On the side, the wrap reads, We're turning our carbon emission green for Earth Day. Except the artist Darren Cullen has photoshopped out the S in Shell and replaced the Shell logo with something similar, but when you look closely at it, it's a flame, making it a Hell Bus rather than a Shell Bus. But back to that text on the side of the Hell Bus. We're turning our carbon emissions green for Earth Day. Really makes you wonder, like, what the hell is the Federal Trade Commission up to nowadays? First, what the hell does it mean to turn your emissions green? To fight climate change, do we simply have to call emissions green and the problem is solved? And if turning your emissions green means making it so they do not contribute to climate change, then why is Shell only doing it for one day? Why not do it every day? 
This is clearly deceptive advertising suggesting Shell can do something to stop climate change when, in fact, it cannot. What's weird is Justice, Justin turned us uh, onto uh, Darren's image of the hell bus shortly after Jeff Dorchin posted an image on social media of a hell gas station where the S in Shell is missing from the canopy or carport over the gas pumps. Back in the 1990s, shortly after This Is Hell began, we received a photo, an actual print in the mail. The picture was a Shell oil truck driving down an Alaska highway that was also missing the S in Shell, making it a hell oil truck, which means we now have images of a hell bus, a hell gas station, and a hell fuel truck, with two being real and one seemingly photoshopped. Justin uh, followed up that email immediately with another saying, geez, I'm a dumbass. Here's a link to his Hellbus project. Justin then links us to a, a spellingmistakescostlives.com, a completely different website, slash Hellbus, which means the bus is not photoshopped. And on closer inspection, the logo on the bus is the Shell logo, but it's on fire. At spellingmistakescostlives.com slash Hellbus, Darren Cullen describes himself as an artist based in southeast London, where I run the Museum of Neoliberalism, and my hobbies include pissing off Shell. Darren explains, my plan is to install an anti-Shell greenwashing showroom inside a single-decker biodiesel-powered bus and bring it to COP26, as well as future uh, protests, festivals, and to park outside Shell marketing events, as well as corporate headquarters. The bus will be based on my 2017 anti-Shell installation, but massively expanded with a dozen or more new satirical climate apocalypse and greenwashing-related artworks. The UN, again, the UN Climate Change Conference called COP26, will take place in Glasgow beginning on Halloween Sunday, October 31st and running for approximately two weeks until Friday, November 13th. If you would like to help Darren get a biodiesel bus turned into a rolling anti-shell display, you can donate at spellingmistakescostlives.com slash hellbus. And to be honest, he's also got some very cool hellbus swag, including a t-shirt with the shell logo on fire and the word hell underneath it, which has got to be copyright infringement, but who cares? F shell. Now, you're probably wondering what I was wondering when reading Darren's bio, and that is... What the hell is the Museum of Neoliberalism? And is it a real bricks-and-mortar museum or something more virtual, just something that's online? So, Darren has a link to the museum, again, at his website, spellingmistakescostlives.com. But I found this four-out-of-five-star review of the Museum of Neoliberalism at Time Out London's website. It says... Whatever you take away from the Museum of Neoliberalism, you definitely won't forget to display bottle of Amazon employee urine. According to the museum, it came from a worker in one of the company's fulfillment centers who passed up a toilet break in order not to fall behind on work targets. It's just one of the ways this place confronts you with how modern economic structures have trickled down into people's everyday lives. Tucked between a laundrette and a hairdresser's in an unassuming post-war shopping center in Lewisham, the museum explains its purpose in a window sign. To look back on neoliberalism, what it has done to our world, and what might lie beyond it, turns out it's scary stuff. And it turns out the Museum of Neoliberalism is a real live museum. Who knew? 
Justin, thanks for the tip. Looking forward to partying with you twice as hard at next year's anniversary and listener appreciation party. If you could send me more of those satirical bumper stickers that instead of all the religious symbols spelling out coexist, they spell out eat a prick. Or we could work out some way we can get more of those stunning wooden this is hell coasters. That'd be great. So please get in contact with us about both. I really do love that bumper sticker that instead of saying coexist, it says eat a prick. It's really fantastic. And every time I show it to people, they're like, how much? They want to buy it. Also, if anybody out there listening knows Darren Cullen, tell him we mentioned his work, his campaign, and the Museum of Neoliberalism on This Is Hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gaptooth radio show podcast live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Producing today's show is Alexander Jerry. Thank you, Alex, for producing. We told you so. This is hell. My demon is on my butt. Uh. My demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>